0: Amen. We gather together today as people who say, Jesus, we honor you, not because we're trying to earn your love, but because you've already given us your love. You've received us because you placed yourself on the cross in our place for our sin, and our hearts are overwhelmed with that reality. Before we study God's Word today, before we open the Scripture, I want us to pray for a couple things as a church Last Saturday, the Jewish community was under attack in Pittsburgh. I'm sure you read about this on the news. And not only are people in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith suffering there, but even here. And so we've had um, leaders from the Jewish community that we've been in contact with, just letting them know that we're praying for them. And even in a local synagogue, there was hateful and racist graffiti um, tagged on a wall. And we, as Christians we would need to remind ourselves and remind those who we're friends with that any racism is a violation against the character of the God that we worship. And so we've communicated to the leaders in the Jewish community that at Mariners, we we are praying for you and we stand with you. And so we're going to pray for them together this morning in our gathering. We also are going to pray for the elections. And so it's midterm elections this week. I'm you may not have noticed signs, but it's <laughs> happening. And long before there w- there was a Republican and a Democrat party. Long before that, the Scripture encouraged us and challenged us. Actually, commanded us to pray for our leaders. And so, as Christians, we are we have that responsibility. We're to pray for our leaders, and so we're going to do that, praying for our current leaders and also those who will be going into office here or elected this week. So let's pray together, Jesus. We are so grateful that you have chosen to accept us because you were condemned and forgive us because you were rejected. Lord, our hearts are hurting for the Jewish community here and around the U.S. as they are subjected to horrific acts of hatred and racism. And Lord, we ask that you would comfort them and give peace even as we're praying now. Lord, we pray for our current officials, Lord. We we pray for our president. We pray for our governor, our senators, our local officials. And Lord, we know that in your providence and wisdom, you're going to put new people into office this week, and we pray for them. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and that you would protect them and their families, that you would use them to serve us well, to serve our communities and our state and our country well. Lord, as we're now gonna open up your word, we do so because we believe it and it's true. And we believe that there's lessons for us today in your scripture. And we pray you'd use use it today to challenge us. It's in your name I pray, amen. You can grab a seat. Good to see you this morning. We are gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have a Bible, if you do not have a Bible with you, all of the scripture that we're looking at is in the bulletin that you were handed when you came in. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11, and we're going to look at the famous implosion story of King David, and we're going to learn some lessons from his ruin. And so the, the, the title of this series today and next week is How to Ruin Your Life, and obviously we want to do the, op- the, the opposite of that. We don't want to ruin our lives. But when we look at David, we see an implosion. He imploded, and people love to see implosions. They love to see great buildings fall. They love to see structures that took years to construct. They fall down in a matter of seconds. Last August, the Georgia Dome was scheduled to be imploded, and so cameras were set up. The Weather Channel set up the exact perfect spot where you could have a perfect view of the implosion of the Georgia Dome. I mean, it's it's the best place for you to watch this famous implosion take place. And so I'm going to show it to you now. This is the Weather Channel's setup. It was broadcast live to, to hundreds of thousands of people, and this is what you would have seen. Just doing my job, just driving the bus, just doing my job. <laughs> people were disappointed because people love to see implosions. The very first implosion I saw was when I was in grade school and my father, who was a civil engineer in the New Orleans area where I grew up, he took me to watch the tallest building at the chemical plant where he worked. He took me to watch that implode. So he was a civil engineer, so he worked with the engineers that were a part of the demolition experts that were a part of taking this building down. And my dad checked me out of school, and we stood there in front of this building, and he explained to me how buildings can be torn down a multitude of ways. They, they can be torn down from the outside. So sometimes demolition experts will set up a crane with a wrecking ball, and they'll just pummel the building from the outside. And when that happens, everybody knows that this building is about to go down. I mean, it's no secret, it's no surprise when the building falls because the crane and the wrecking ball announce to the watching world this building is going down. But my dad said there's another way that buildings can go down. Demolition experts will set explosives at critical junctures in the building and they'll go off in sequence in an intentional manner and then the foundation of the structure will weaken and the structure will implode. On top of itself. Basically, the weight of the building won't be able to handle the the, the, the building itself won't be able to handle the weight as it just topples on top of itself. And so a horn went off and two minutes later, the building that took years to construct was down in a matter of seconds. And people then got in their car and drove away. They were just there to see a good implosion. But lives implode as well. Sometimes as Christians, we like to talk about um, our lives being attacked from the outside, all the trials that we face from the outside, all the struggles that we face from the outside, or the people who attack us from the outside, or the spiritual warfare from the outside. But most often when someone's life is ruined, it's not external attacks, it's an implosion from the inside. It's when the character of one's life weakens And if the weight of burdens that you face and that I face, if the weight of responsibility in my life is greater than my character, then I am set up for an implosion. And this is what happens to David in 2 Samuel 11. Now, if you're here and you think, man, this is is me. I feel like I've ruined my life. You're not alone. And if you're here and you're thinking, "Um, you know, this doesn't apply for me. I'm never going to ruin my life. David this story that we're looking at, this guy wrote psalms that were in the Bible. Has anybody in here written a psalm that made the Bible? Anybody? (laughs) That actually made the Bible? None of us have. David was, the scripture says of David, a man after God's own heart. The scripture says of David that he led God's people with skillful hands and a pure heart. This was a man who God used in incredible ways and yet he imploded. He imploded. And we're going to read about his implosion today. And watching different implosions in, in my life, from friends of mine to people that were in ministry and no longer are, they have not caused me to think that will never happen to me. In fact, the more implosions that I've watched, they cause me to realize how frail and fragile I am, that I cannot keep myself from falling that there's only one who can hold me. There's only one who can keep me from falling, and that is Jesus. He's the only one who can hold me strong because I am not strong in myself. And we're gonna see that in 2 Samuel 11. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna read the first four verses, and then I'm gonna tell us the rest of the story, remind us of the rest of the story, and then I'm going to pull out just three thoughts, three explosive devices that we see in David's life that led to his implosion. So here we are, verse one. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. The rest of the story is more sensational, shocking, salacious than any Dateline special you'll ever watch. David receives word from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. So David thinks, I'm king. I've been able to cover other things. It's what I do. I fix things. I'm smart. I'm cunning. I'm crafty. I can solve this problem. And so David thinks all he's going to do to cover it, it's really simple. Just get Uriah, her husband, to come home from the battlefield. And when he comes home, he's going to not have been with his wife for a while. He's going to want to go home and be with his wife. And then boom, everything's covered. But Uriah comes home from the battlefield and He meets David at the palace, and surely David engages Uriah in some small talk. Hey, how's your family? Tell me about your family. Thinking that it's going to trigger in Uriah a desire to go home and be with his wife. But Uriah is such a man of integrity that he doesn't go home because he thinks of the fellow soldiers that he fights alongside that are sleeping, not in their beds with their wives, but are sleeping on the battlefield. And so he sleeps on the footstep of the palace. David... And this is is not good. I have to go to plan B mode now. And plan B mode for David is to bring him over a second night. And the second night, I'm going to not only feed him, I'm going to give him some wine. And when he gets drunk, then his inhibitions will lower. And surely then he'll go home. But he doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps again on the footsteps of the palace. And so then David does the unthinkable. David surely said he would never be like this because there was a king before David, a king named Saul, and Saul used, misused the military resources to actually chase David across the countryside. And surely at that point in his life, David said, I'll never be like this guy. I'll never waste the king's authority in this way. I'll never do this. But David does the exact same thing. He writes a letter to Joab, his chief military strategist, his general, the general of the army, and the letter says to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, on the front of the battle where the fighting's the fiercest, to pull the troops back so that Uriah is there alone and that Uriah dies. David crafts the letter, seals it, he actually hands it to Uriah to carry to Joab. Uriah carries his own death certificate without even thinking. To look inside. Why? Because Uriah is filled with such integrity. He wouldn't even think to look inside the king's letter. Joab does just as David instructed, and Uriah is killed. Word is sent back to David that Uriah is dead. And David thinks he's covered his own sin. That Uriah was sacrificed. And it was messy, and I wouldn't wish it hadn't happened this way, but he was sacrificed, and my sin is covered. But it wasn't covered. The Lord saw all of it. In fact, the very last verse of 2 Samuel 11 says, this thing that David did displeased the Lord. The Lord saw all of it. And the Lord sees all of my junk too. And yours too. Every time in my life that I've sinned and I've tried to cover it up and I've tried to fix things and I've tried to make it right myself, the Lord sees it all. And he saw all of David's sin. So the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, God sends a prophet named Nathan to go confront David in his sin. And like any good preacher, Nathan sets David up with this killer illustration. Hey, David, let me tell you about two people in the kingdom. So, David's king, he has a kingdom. Let me tell you about these two people. There's this one wealthy person, David. This guy has tons of cattle tons of sheep, anything he wants, he can have. And then there's this one poor man. This one poor man, David, he has one lamb. That's all that he has, one lamb. This one lamb is like a member of his family. This lamb eats at the table with him. He snuggles with the lamb at night, David. I mean, this is how close this man, this poor man is with this one lamb. But David, guess what happened? This rich man, this wealthy man had a a guest from out of town come stay at his house. And instead of killing one of his many cattle or one of his many sheep, the rich man actually reached over the fence to the poor man's house and stole the one lamb from the poor man and killed the poor man. Killed the poor man's lamb. David, the scripture says, burned with anger. Burned with anger, which shows us and shows me, oh, I have to be so careful of this. We are so prone to be frustrated with the sin in everybody else's life more so than the sin in our own. And so David, when he hears this story, says, this can't go down in my kingdom. Show me that man. Whoever that man is, he deserves to die and he must pay four times over. And Nathan gives the famous statement, David, you are that man. You're that man. You took from Uriah the one thing he had, David. The Lord gave you all of this, David. You were a shepherd in a field and God picked you and put you in charge of all of God's people and he would have done even more for you. But you acted ill against the Lord. You sinned against the Lord. David, look what you have done with your life. We'll see at the end of today's message and we'll see next week that God's forgiveness is greater than David's sin. So we're gonna get there. But before we get there, we have to wrestle with the weight of the fall. The weight of the implosion. So we can learn from this story. So let's go back to Second Samuel 11, the first four verses. And there's three things, three explosives that we can see in David's life that led to his destruction. And these same three explosives can lead to mine and lead to yours. The first, if you want to write this down or it's actually on your, on your listening guide or your, the notes in your bulletin, is to isolate yourself you want to ruin your life, and obviously you want to do the opposite of this, but if you want to ruin your life, you would simply isolate yourself. You would surround yourself with people who will only tell you what you want to hear. You would surround yourself with people who are impressed with you and won't tell you the truth and won't hold you accountable. So David was surrounded when he ruined his life. There was people around him. There was people who went and got Bathsheba for him. But he wasn't surrounded by people who would speak truth into his life, who would hold him accountable, who would tell him, David, this is wrong, this is foolish. In fact, we can see this in verse 1, that he was isolated. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, so where should David be? He's a king. All six of you answered, congratulations, you have (laughs) answered correctly. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, that's not what David does. David sent Joab in the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He sent people away. He sent people away who would have held him accountable. Joab was not a perfect man. But if you want to read a story that's interesting and shows you that Joab would have stopped David in his foolishness and his madness, you can look at 1 Chronicles 21. In 1 Chronicles 21, Joab um, goes to David and says, this census that you want to do, David, this is detestable before the Lord. Joab was actually willing to risk his position to hold the king accountable. But Joab wasn't there the night that David ruined his life. Before I moved here, I was um, senior vice president and chief business officer at a large ministry in Nashville, Tennessee. And I had an executive coach for for seven years. I met with him once a month, every month for seven years. He coaches um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, a really godly man, great leader, but also a strong Christian. His name's Steve Graves. And he leads, he was telling me a story about a group, a Bible study group that he leads, and they call themselves the used-to-be's. Who, who is in this group? Steve, who's in this group? Who's the used to be's? Well, one guy used to be the CEO of a company until his affair became public and the board removed him from his position. One guy used to be the prominent dentist in his community until his addiction caused him to ruin everything and lose everything. One, one guy used to be The hot entrepreneur who every VC wanted to angel invest in and give money to until his addictive behavior absolutely destroyed his life. It's a bunch of used to be's. And so they've gotten together with Steve, these used to be's, and here's what they concluded was the number one thing that led to their destruction is all of them said, I grew so independent. I was isolated from other people. They believed lies that sometimes leaders can believe, such as it's lonely at the top or nobody gets you. Nobody understands you. No one knows the pressure that you face. And they used those statements to cause them to pull away from others. And there was no one around them who would hold them accountable. David was alone in a crowd because he had people around him who were afraid to tell him the truth. In our culture today, there's starting to be conversations about, have we even lost what it means to be a friend or to have a friend? Because you can have a thousand friends on Facebook, but I'm talking about like old school friends, someone who helps you move or you call at 2 a.m., you know, like a friend. So Hal Nadevich, he wrote an article in the New York Times about this. He did a social experiment. He had 700 friends on Facebook. And so he decided to host a party for all his friends. And the experiment was how many are actually going to show up to my party? 700 people that have said I'm their friend. They've designated me as their friend. Surely some of my friends will come to a party that I host. And so using the Facebook app, he posted the party. 60 people said they would maybe come, 15 said yes, they would come, and one person actually came one person. So, he concluded in the New York Times article that we've lost the sense of what a friend really is. We've trivialized the word friend. A much more startling example is Sunantha Simmons who died or was found dead on Christmas Day of 2014. She lived in in southern Illinois and on Christmas Day 2014 Her neighbors discovered that she was dead. The coroner came over and found her and did an autopsy, and they concluded that she had been dead in her garage for more than a year. For more than a year. She lived in a neighborhood without real neighbors. Because when you look at pictures of her home, you see that her front porch is filled with newspapers that were just constantly thrown on the front porch, that her lawn is overgrown. And so she had neighbors around her, but they weren't real neighbors. She was in a neighborhood without real neighbors. And sadly, it's possible, and this breaks my heart, for you to come to church and not be in church, for you to come and gather in a church this size and not really be in community and still stay isolated. It's possible to live in a neighborhood without neighbors and it's possible to come to church and not have community. That's why so badly we want to do everything we can at Mariners to help you get in a group. So if you're not yet in one, if you notice in your bulletin today, we are launching one for Christmas, a new new set of Advent groups or Christmas groups. And if you're not yet in a group, I encourage you, if you can make it work, it's only five weeks long. It will help you get connected to some people. There'll be a table in the patio after the service. We'd love to help you get connected. David fell when he was isolated, and he repented when he was in community. When Nathan the prophet was in relationship with David, David repented. He fell in isolation and he repented in community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous pastor who actually died standing up to Adolf Hitler. Hitler had him killed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. It's very powerful. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. So sin wants you alone sin wants you to be isolated sin demands to have a man by himself it withdraws him from the community the more isolated a person is the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it the more disastrous is his isolation sin wants to remain unknown it shuns the light the sin in my life hates community the sin in my life loves isolation and the same is true for you do not isolate yourself All right, here's number two. If you want to ruin your life, this is what David did. He ignored his boredom. If you want to ruin your life, you ignore your boredom. David was was bored. Look at verse two of this passage. David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of the palace. So David gets up out of bed at other points in the Psalms. So David wrote many of the Psalms. David would pray things like this in the Psalms. God, I think about you through the watches of the night. Your love is better than life. I look to you. Not in 2 Samuel 11, David doesn't. In Psalm 27, 4, for example, David says, there's one thing I ask of you, Lord. There's just one thing I want to gaze upon your beauty all the days of my life. David essentially says, the one thing I want, God, is to look at you because you're so awesome and you quench me and you fulfill me. That's the one thing I want. That's not how David lives in 2 Samuel 11. He's not gazing on the beauty of the Lord. He's gazing on the beauty of Bathsheba. As he walks around on the roof of the palace, he looks for something else other than the Lord to quench him. I used to not think that boredom was a sin. If you'd asked me maybe a decade ago if I thought boredom was a sin, I think I would have said, uh, I think boredom leads to sin, but I don't, I don't know if boredom's a sin. Martin Louis Jones, he said this, sin is always in some sense... A life of boredom. Why is sin, why is boredom sin? Here's why boredom is sin. Because when I'm bored, I'm not looking at the Lord because the Lord is never boring if there's a moment in my life that I'm like, I'm just bored, I'm in a bored season in my life, I'm bored, I'm just bored, then I'm not looking at him because he is never boring. He's always satisfying and always quenching. The Lord never bores us. And so if we're bored, it means we're looking at something else, we're gazing at something else and hoping that thing will fulfill us when only the Lord can ultimately fulfill us. Our possessions don't fulfill us. We, we've, we've learned this the hard way. Maybe you've thought, once I get that promotion, boom, everything will be set. You get it, three weeks later, you're still not fulfilled. Possession, same thing. If I, if I get this, it will, it will scratch that itch and it will fulfill me, but it, it doesn't. That's why boat owners famously say, the two best days in a boat owner's life, finish it for me. The day you get it and the day you... And I'm not cracking on you if you have a boat. I'd love to hang out with you sometime. (laughs) I'm just saying that the possessions, we know this. The reason we say this is because this thing didn't quench. It didn't satisfy. Possessions don't. Popularity doesn't. Asina O'Neill, a couple years ago, really shocked the social media community when she just deleted all of a sudden her Instagram account. She was famous teenage Instagram she had over 500,000 Instagram followers. And she was paid from companies for actually wearing things in her Instagram post. And she said one day, I just deleted this all because it suffocated me. It didn't satisfy me. It suffocated me. What looked like a post that was done effortlessly took hours to construct. And she said, I'm getting off of this because I no longer want to be defined by a number, the number of likes or the number of followers. So this 500,000 follower count, it didn't quench me. It didn't fulfill me. Rapper Lil Wayne said something very similar to this in one of his songs. He said this. I don't know why every time I quote a rapper, you laugh at me. But Lil Wayne said this is this is a deep line he said married to the game but she broke her vows and this is some of you have found this to be true you you married the game for you your game was your career or your portfolio but she broke her vows to you man i gave everything to this game married to the game but but she broke her vows She she was supposed to quench me. She was supposed to fulfill me and she hasn't delivered on what she promised she would deliver on. That's what Lil Wayne is saying. Married to the game, but she broke her vows. That's why my bars are full of broken bottles and my nightstands are full of open Bibles. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for something that will actually deliver on its promise. See, everything else that you look at will not quench and not satisfy. And so if you're bored, listen, the solution to your boredom is to look at him because he never bores. So if if you feel like your marriage is hanging on by a thread and you've said to friends, confidence, I just need to find myself. I just need something new. I'm just bored. The answer to a boring marriage isn't to look at your marriage. It's to look at Jesus and allow Jesus to breathe life back into your marriage. The answer... If you're saying my career, my career, I'm just, I'm just bored. I'm sick of going to the same dang cubicle. I'm just, I'm, I'm just bored. I just need a new challenge. The answer isn't to look at your job, it's to look at Jesus. He's never boring, and He will breathe life back into your job. Boredom is a sin, and it leads to other sins, but it means we're not looking at Him. Okay, here's number three if we want to ruin our lives, we walk in pride. number one, we isolate ourselves. Number two, we ignore our boredom. Number three, we walk in pride. David walked in pride. Verse four, he finds out that she's married. David, this is um, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. David, Uriah is one of your men. He's fighting for you on a battlefield while you're in the palace. Usually it's the springtime, David, and you're on battle, but you're in the palace. He's fighting for you. She's married to him, the wife of Uriah. David says, go get her. I'm the king. Anything I want, I get, is what David was saying. Go get her. At this point in David's life, this is not his best moment. This is his worst moment. At this point in his life, he says, look at the the polls. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at my approval ratings. Look at the number of people who named their kids after me. Look at the newspaper clippings. Look at my highlight reel. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at all I've pulled off. If I want her to come to the palace, I'm asking you to go get her. I'm the king. Anything I want, I get. He felt he deserved this. And this is an indication of pride. Whenever we feel we're owed something, it shows we're walking in pride. Pride is hard to detect. C.S. Lewis, the famous author and great theologian. In his classic work called Mere Christianity, he wrote a whole chapter on pride. He calls pride the great sin. And he says, Lewis says of pride, it's the one sin that you can see in everybody else, but you can't see in yourself. And why is that? I thought about Lewis's statement. I think what he's saying is this. If you see it in everybody else, it's often because you have it more in you, Lewis says, because if you see someone else being prideful, you think, huh. He has no reason to be prideful, but me on the other hand. (laughs) I have reason to be filled with pride. It's the great sin that we can't detect. So how do we know if we're filled with pride? Because pride will always lead to our destruction, the scripture says. How do you know if you're filled with pride? You're filled with pride if you feel you are owed something. You're filled with pride if you lose your sense of gratitude for everything you have. This is what Nathan says to David. Nathan tells David, David, look at everything God did, and that wasn't enough for you? God did all of this for you, and you wanted Bathsheba? God was so good to you, David, and you wanted more? Where was the sense of gratitude for everything that the Lord gave you? Are you grateful? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you go out of town for business and... You're speaking somewhere, or you're consulting a group, or you're, you're visiting a regional office, and the people who are hosting you hand you a hotel key to the Holiday Inn Express. You're going to spend two nights at the Holiday Inn Express. Are you grateful? It depends what you expected. If you get a key to the Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn Express and you expected two nights at the Ritz Carlton, you're not grateful. You're calling your wife or your boyfriend. You're saying this is this is ridiculous. I was expecting the Ritz, where there's a seating area that I don't even use, but it looks really awesome. I was expecting that. I I don't have the Holiday Inn Express. Doesn't have salts imported from some island in the Pacific. There's not a telephone in the bathroom. Nobody turns down the bed and puts chocolates on the covers with slippers. I mean, this is I'm at the Holiday Inn Express. On the other hand, if you were expecting that you would stay at an old junior college dormitory, when someone hands you the key to the Holiday Inn Express, you're like, this is amazing. This is so good. You're calling your your wife and you're like, baby, guess what? I have a shower curtain. This is amazing. There's two pillows. I can sleep on one and snuggle the other. This is so good. The reason you're filled with gratitude is because your expectations were exceeded. So whenever your expectations are exceeded, you're filled with gratitude. This is why the scripture reminds us as Christians, and this is why Christianity drives a stake in the heart of pride, because the Christian faith tells us really the only thing we deserved for our sin is death. But Jesus Christ in his great mercy came here and put himself on the cross in our place for our sin. And everything we have from our salvation to our forgiveness, to the clothes we wear, to the food we're gonna eat, all of it is a gift of God. It's all by his grace. It's all by his mercy. And when when we remember that, when I wake up each day, and I remember all of this is his. All of this is by his grace. I don't feel I'm owed. God, the only thing I'm really owed because of my sin is death. It's what even David said, this man deserves to die. I deserve death. Everything I have is God's grace to me. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, this, I, I'm never gonna ruin my life this way. It may not be this way, but all of us in some way have ruined our lives. And what's tragic about this story is David observed the king before him ruin his life. Saul was the king before David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul commits suicide on the battlefield. He's absolutely ruined his life. And David pins these words twice in 2 Samuel chapter 1. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. See, some of us thought that Jim Collins, who wrote a book called How the Mighty Have Fallen, was the first to come up with that phrase, but David recorded it thousands of years ago, How the Mighty Have Fallen. But the one who wrote down How the Mighty Have Fallen couldn't keep himself from falling, and I can't keep myself from falling either. The only one who can keep me from falling and the only one who can keep you from falling is the one who is above all and beyond all. It is Jesus Christ, the only one who can hold us and keep us to himself. He's the only one who can keep you. So let me give you a little bit of preview of next week because I know this has been heavy, and you're like, gosh, man, this is so encouraging. Pride. I implosions I mean this is awesome so glad I came to church today what'd you talk about church today honey just ruining everything just gonna blow up everything so let me give you a little bit of preview of next week because David's sin was great but God's grace is greater and your sin and my sin is great but God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness is so much deeper it's so much greater so here's the preview after Nathan confronted David, look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And this is how we know that David really belongs to God. Because when he's confronted on his sin, he, he, he confesses, I, I've sinned against the Lord. Saul, the former king, when he was confronted by a prophet named Samuel, Saul makes excuses for his sin. David doesn't. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says this, yes, yes, you have sinned. But the Lord, he's forgiven you. He's forgiven you. How can God already in that moment already forgive David? How? Here's how. King David was forgiven right away, not because of David's goodness, but because another king would come from the same city which David was born in, the city of Bethlehem. Another king would come who would sacrifice himself for David's sins and for my sins and for your sins. David sacrificed Uriah in an attempt to cover his own sin, and that attempt failed. Uriah was unknowingly and unwillingly sacrificed in an attempt to cover David's sin. Jesus the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who was born in Bethlehem, God himself came here for us and he willingly and knowingly laid down his life to cover our sin and his sacrifice is sufficient and his sacrifice is complete. And because that king came, because that king came, The sins of King David are forgiven, not because of King David's offering, but because of the offering of King Jesus. And so God could look at King David's sin and the same time look at King Jesus' sacrifice, and that's how David's sin can be forgiven. And God looks at your sin in the middle of the ruin of your life, in the middle of my ruin and my sinfulness. God looked at my sin and saw the sacrifice of Jesus at the exact same time. And on the cross, Jesus took on himself... What he hated so he could be with us. He took on himself all of our sin. He hates sin because he's holy and pure, yet he loves us. Let me, let me try and illustrate this. My daughters love roller coasters, and I can't stand them. I hate them. In fact, we moved here a couple months ago, they were super excited about the new Incredibles ride at California Adventure, the one that goes in a loop. And so, oh goodness, we went to California Adventure and we did the Incredibles ride and they loved it. And I'm, I'm dry heaving on the side and they're doing single rider to do it again. And I'm, I'm like, I'm tapped out, I'm not doing this. I, I hate roller coasters, always have. I, some of you say I'm a wuss, but it makes me a little, a little squeezy inside. I just don't like it at all. When I first was married to Kay, my wife, I took her to the state fair, which is horrible for rides. I mean, its I had a funnel cake and got on the swings and threw up. I mean, the swings made me throw up. And I'm not going back. I'm not going back to the state fair. There's 9 year old kids in Iron Maiden t-shirts with mullets, chain smoking with a flip phone, and they're responsible to run the ride. I'm not going out like that. I'm just, I'm not going out that way. So I hate those rides, hate roller coasters, hate them. My daughters love them. So every year I take each daughter on a daddy-daughter trip to spend time with each daughter. And a couple years ago, Eden, who's my oldest, says to me, Daddy, I want to go to Disney World and I want to ride every roller coaster. (laughs) And so what do I do even though I hate roller coasters? I do it. I absorb what I hate to be with my daughter who I love so much. Here's actually a picture of me absorbing what I hate. (laughs) To be with my daughter who I love so much. On the cross, Jesus absorbed what he hated, sin, to be with you. To take all of your sin from you. So if you're here and you're like, man, I'm in the middle of ruin. I'm dealing with the painful consequences of choices I've made. Those consequences may stay, but God's forgiveness is bigger than all of your sin. He put himself on the cross to take your sin from you. His love and his mercy for you is greater. And we're going to talk about this next week. So, so how do I overcome boredom? I, Eric, I kind of do feel bored. Or how do I overcome pride? How do I walk in humility? Really the same way you turn your gaze from the things around you and you turn your gaze, your eyes towards Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace."
1: Be the in inside my You're never gonna die, you never gonna die.
0: I love that. He is never going to let you down. He's never going to let us down. We just keep casting our gaze towards him. Before we leave, just a couple of things. For those of you who give here at Mariners, thank you for your generosity. Most of us give online every week. So you may have come in and wondered, we don't pass out an offering plate. We actually have offering baskets that you can give on your way out. My family and I, we give online. And the reason we give and the reason we invite people here to give is because God's been giving to us. He's been generous to us. And so we give not to try and earn God, but we give because God's been so good and generous to us. Before you leave today, if there's anything going on in your life that you want someone to pray with you about, we have a team of people that would be here to my left, your right, right by those lights. They would love to pray with you. If you want prayer for healing, whether that's emotional or physical healing, we have some elders here, a team of elders that would love to pray with you. And to get to the elder prayer room, you just go through the double doors and to the right and you can meet elders there and they will pray with you. I mentioned in the the sermon that you can sign up for one of our small groups around Christmas time. It's an Advent group. I wanna encourage you if you're not in a group to stop by the table, either turn this in or talk to someone there. And maybe you're here and you you would like to be a part of a group of people similar to the used to be's that I've mentioned. Well, every Monday night we have a group of people that gather here at 6.30 that are going through different things or have gone through different things. They're in the middle of recovery. And and honestly, all of us who are Christians, all of us are in recovery. All of us are in recovery because all of us have had sin mess us up and Christ is constantly recovering us and redeeming us and changing us. And so if you feel like there's a struggle in your life, I don't want you to feel ashamed to go there on Monday night at 6.30, All of us in here, all of us have struggles. All of us have issues. But God's grace is bigger than all of our struggles. And so if you would like that community, you don't even have to sign up. You just show up tomorrow night at 630. They would love to have you. Well, let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing. Jesus, these are your sons and your daughters. And Lord, I pray that this week that you would cause your face to shine on them and they would experience the joy of knowing you and walking with you. And Lord, as you turn your face towards them, I pray that they would turn their face towards you, that they would turn their eyes towards you and look full in your wonderful face and that they would find this week that you are sweeter and better than anything this world offers. I pray that you would bless them this week as they walk with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Have a great week.